Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. Tuesday, July 11 edition of PFTPM from Hilton Head, South Carolina. Still undisclosed specifically as to where I am, but you may see me riding around on a bike, even though I try to wear a disguise when I do. I really don't. Maybe a hat, maybe some sunglasses. If you see me, say hello. I'll say hello back. Just don't run me off the road and don't run me into one of the lagoons because there are man-eating alligators in there. Got video of one last night. Those things are terrifying. And everyone who lives here, visits here, is just kind of nonchalant about it. But they are massive and they can kill you. So that's one of my objectives for the week. To-do list. Don't get eaten by an alligator, although some of you may be rooting for the alligator, which is fine. Let's get to the news. And I'd like to begin with old business. We talked yesterday about Pat Fitzgerald's situation at Northwestern. And I made the point of the difference between what he actually knew about hazing or other misconduct in the football program, what he should have known, and then the bigger picture question of what he should have created, the culture he should have established and maintained within the program that would tell all players, do not mistreat in any way, physically, emotionally, psychologically, any one in the program or connected to the program, anyone you come in contact with, and then within that broader program, anyone would know and everyone would know if there's any type of mistreatment, they can go straight to Fitzgerald. There'll be no reprisal, no retaliation, because if there is, there will be swift and permanent punishment visited upon those who would act out in some sort of vengeance against whoever broke the code and ratted out and snitched on whoever mistreated someone else. That culture wasn't there. Or it wouldn't have gotten to this point where multiple anonymous players providing detailed information to the Daily Northwestern, the school newspaper, to the president in the university. There was a former player on the record about some of the racial issues within the program. It just got to the point where they couldn't continue this. And it doesn't surprise me. And it also doesn't surprise me that Northwestern initially tried to just kind of brush it under the rug. Let's see if it blows over. Let's see if we can get through this. Let's see if we can weather this storm. And then I think they realized they couldn't. And if along the way, they also had an epiphany that it's not what he knew, it's not what he should have known, it's the program he should have created. This all would have been ended before it ever began. Any problems, any issues, any mistreatment would have been reported to him, would have been cured, would have been solved, and everybody would have moved on. I still wonder how many other programs have situations like this, but the message to every coach at every level of every sport, ensure that your players and anyone connected to your program understands, don't mistreat others. And if you are being mistreated or if you witness it, you come to me and I will end it and I will take it seriously and I will make sure that you are protected. In fact, that you are championed and applauded for the fact that you have helped protect the culture of the program by making me aware of things that I don't know and I can't see. I can't be here all the time. I'm not in every nook and cranny of the locker room, the practice field, wherever players and others may gather. I don't know what happens. And that's the way to find out. 
That's a way to know, and that's a way to ensure that you have the right kind of culture when people are, as I said yesterday, entrusting their children to these football programs where they get an education, but they don't get paid anything close to what they deserve for the money they bring in. I want to address briefly the nugget in the article from the New York Times regarding Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas and the way he tapped into a network of the rich and powerful and how he apparently has received gifts and services and hospitality over the years that somehow wasn't reported, somehow isn't scrutinized, and somehow is just sort of accepted and allowed. And I know that anything that remotely crosses over into the world of the political will instantly become red state, blue state, us versus them, I'm right, you're wrong, and some profanity sprinkled in around there. But I'd like to think we can all agree on one basic reality, whether you are of a conservative mindset or a progressive mindset or some other ideology. The judges need to be independent. The judges need to be impartial. The judges need to be fair. And if you allow Supreme Court justices or any judges to receive hospitality, goods, services, etc., from people who would benefit from their rulings, either directly or indirectly, that's a problem. It doesn't matter whether the person leans left or right or right down the middle. There should never be any corruption of the mindset. There should never be any appearance of impropriety. That's one of the things they hammer into you in law school. It's not enough to avoid impropriety. You have to avoid the appearance of impropriety. And it was stunning to me when the news first started to come out about Clarence Thomas and the gifts he was receiving from this really rich dude and plane flights and this, that, and the other thing. And, and, and it's not enough. This is the point to remember. It's not enough that the person providing the gifts and other things to the justice not have an active case pending because that person still benefits from other rulings. You know, if you are a rich, wealthy, powerful business person and you have business interests that ultimately are affected by the rulings of the highest court in the land, even if you're not a party to it, the opinions that are reached, the reasoning that is articulated, the outcomes of these other cases apply to how you run your business. So Justice Thomas is of an ideology and a mindset that leads to decisions that are favorable to business. And it's favorable to Jerry Jones, even if Jerry Jones never had any horse in any race that was pending in front of the Supreme Court. The fact that those other cases are coming out in a way that help business generally, that helps Jerry Jones specifically. And the idea that he gave him a Super Bowl ring and that he's been in the private suite at Cowboys games when they play in Washington, he's been to training camp. I mean, those are things that are not available to the average person. He's not walking around handing out Super Bowl rings. He's giving the Super Bowl ring to this person for one very important reason. And you can say, well, they're just friends, but friendships flow from circumstance and circumstance flows from opportunity. And it's not many steps to get to the point where you pick your friends based upon who can help you. This person can help me. I will be his friend and I hope he will be my friend and I will do what I have to do to cultivate and expand that friendship. It's pretty simple. And it doesn't matter whether it is a right or left judge. This should, I think we, I think we can agree. I'd like to think we can agree that it should always be the case that the judges are neutral, impartial, and uncorrupted by any impropriety or any appearance 
of impropriety. Chris Jones, the great Chiefs defensive lineman, wants a new contract. The team reportedly is optimistic it'll get done before camp begins. It'll be interesting to see what the contract is. We've talked in the past about this cluster of guys who have signed new contracts at the defensive tackle position this offseason in the range of 22.5 to 23.5 million per year in new money. Then you've got Aaron Donald north of 30 million. He's the outlier. So where is Chris Jones trying to land between Aaron Donald and everybody else? It's like $8 million a year in a gap between those two ends. My guess all along has been Chris Jones is trying to get Aaron Donald money. And Chris Jones isn't maybe exactly as dominant as Aaron Donald, but he's pretty damn close. And as I've said many times before, they don't win Super Bowl 54 without Chris Jones freaking out Jimmy Garoppolo and getting him to not throw the ball over the middle of the field after batting a ball or two down in the second half. And there was a play when George Kittle was wide open, but Jimmy Garoppolo was not going to mess with it because he knew Chris Jones was there. And then in the AFC Championship game this past year, without Chris Jones, I don't think the Chiefs get to the Super Bowl because he stepped up when it felt like the Bengals were going to go down the field and win the game with a field goal or a touchdown. Chris Jones stepped up harassed Joe Burrow enough to get the ball back. And then the Chiefs did their thing on offense. So I I think that the core of this is the Chiefs hope they can get the Patrick Mahomes, Travis Kelsey, Jedi mind trick to apply to Chris Jones. Because you've got Mahomes consciously taking less. He's $7 million per year behind the top of the market. You've got Travis Kelsey, who recently told Vanity Fair that as long as he's winning, he's fine with being underpaid. I think they'd like Chris Jones to sign on to that commitment as well. And I don't think he will, and I don't think he should. He plays a position that doesn't guarantee him the number of years that Mahomes and Kelsey will have. This is his last best chance to get paid. The moment he's no longer delivering is the moment that the Chiefs no longer will keep him. Just ask Frank Clark. So get what you can while you can, especially if you don't get to play as many years as the skill position players who are protected by the rules more thoroughly and completely than a defensive tackle is protected. So I know Chiefs fans want to get mad at me. Oh, you think that that the, the Chiefs are bad because they underpay their players? Like, I don't think they're bad. I think it's good for the Chiefs. It works. But is it right for the players? Are they getting their fair share? That's what it's all about. Just getting your fair share. Is Patrick Mahomes really getting his fair share? There was a photo of this mansion he's building. And somebody tweeted at me, see, you still think he doesn't have enough? That doesn't matter. doesn't matter what he's doing with the money he has. The question is, is he getting enough? Does he deserve more? Because every dollar he doesn't get is going to someone else. He's subsidizing other players on his team, and he's helping Clark Hunt maybe squirrel some money away. That's, that's really the bottom line. How much cash is the team spending? Is Clark Hunt spending every dollar? Is he using every cent available under the salary cap because he's got a quarterback who's deliberately taking less? If I'm Patrick Mahomes, I want to know that that money's being used to give me the best possible team. And if Chris Jones is going to be stubborn about what he wants and if he deserves to get market value, if he deserves to catch Aaron Donald because he's not going to get to play as many years as I am, then so be it. Give him that money. Give him the money that otherwise would go to me. But that's what a great quarterback like Mahomes and Brady in the past has agreed to do subsidize the lesser players on the team, the ones who aren't as good as him, the ones who aren't as central to the effort to win, but are still necessary compliments to the quarterback. 
be interesting to see what Chris Jones gets. And if they do work it out, maybe it's just wishful thinking. Maybe they're trying to speak it into existence. But the bottom line is that's one of the big veteran contracts that remains unresolved. And there are other defensive tackles trying to get paid too. But Chris Jones is the one that is the most important to the effort of the Chiefs to be the first team to repeat in 20 years. If the Chiefs are going to do it, they need him. They need him to be all in. They need him to feel like he's being treated fairly, and they need him to be playing at a very high level. Interesting comments yesterday from Colts owner Jim Ursay to Pat McAfee about quarterback Anthony Richardson, and it confirms something I believed all along. Richardson's going to play. Richardson is going to start. And Ursay said all the things that would point to Richardson starting week one, but then added, well, it's ultimately going to be a decision made by Shane Steichen. But when the owner has made it clear what he wants, see, he never has to tell Shane Steichen, you should start Anthony Richardson. He's already told the world he believes Richardson needs to play. There's going to be growing pains. There's going to be bumps and bruises along the way. He acknowledged Ursay did that Gardner Minshew would arguably play better right out of the gates, but they need to get Anthony Richardson the reps. They need to give him the chance to let the game slow down, to get accustomed to NFL football. And he really hasn't played that much high-level football. All the more reason for him maybe to not sit on the bench. So I think of the three quarterbacks taken in the top four picks this year, Bryce Young, CJ Stroud, Anthony Richardson, I think they're all starting week one. We already know it with Young. They made no bones about it in Carolina. They trade. Look, you can't trade up from nine to one and take a quarterback that you're not going to play. Not in today's game. You want that guy out there. The fans want him out there. And if you don't think he's going to be ready to go week one, you shouldn't have taken him. C.J. Stroud in Houston, get him out on the field. Let him take his lumps now. Let him learn now. That makes you better for next year and the year beyond. There's always going to be that first year. And yeah, the Chiefs were able to tuck Patrick Mahomes in their back pocket and unleash him in 2018. And the NFL was like, holy crap, look at this. But Andy Reid's got some credit for that. Andy Reid shaped that lump of high-end clay into something that became the best quarterback we've seen in years, if not ever. But Reid had something to do with that. They worked it perfectly in Kansas City. These other teams, they have these young quarterbacks. They need to get them ready, and they need to get them out there. I mean, if the Chiefs wouldn't have had an Alex Smith, if they would have been a perennial loser, a team residing near the bottom, a team trying to get out of its own way, and all of a sudden they get Patrick Mahomes, trade up to get him, yeah, you're going to use him right away. And he may have been just fine right away with Andy Reid's tutelage. That's the thing to remember in all of this. The coaching staff, the organization, there's an obligation there for them to get the most out of these players. And when one of these players busts, we blame it on the kid. We don't necessarily look to how good were the coaches? What did they do right? What did they do wrong? How much talent was there around the quarterback to give them a chance to succeed? What's the front office doing to add key players? Is ownership adding to any dysfunction or helping rectify dysfunction or adding to a team that can actually function at a high level, just staying out of the way and letting great football people do their thing? Those are all relevant. And it, it's not fair that we just look at a guy and say he was a bust. Maybe he would have been a bust everywhere, or maybe he would have been a good player somewhere else. Maybe he would have been a star under the right circumstances. That That's what's unfortunate, and I don't want to get on my anti-draft crusade currently, but that's why I'm a firm believer that players should get to pick where they go because where they go and who they're working with has a huge impact. So 
What does Shane Steichen do with Anthony Richardson? I don't know. But the boss has made it pretty damn clear he expects to see him on the field when the season begins. And I think that we will. Shane Steichen's going to have some work to do to convince Jim Irsay to adapt or adopt, as the case may be, the opposite position of what he said yesterday. All right, last one before I answer a few questions. Top 10 coaches. Yesterday, number 10, Doug Peterson. Edging out Matt LaFleur and Mike McCarthy, number nine. And see, today I don't have to get into the whole, well, it could have been this one too, because we know Peterson's at 10. At number nine, Titans coach Mike Vrabel. Now, look, they've been the number one seed and lost at home to the Cincinnati Bengals in a game where Ryan Tannehill threw three interceptions, but they've also beaten the number one seed in 2019. Vrabel took the Titans into Baltimore and they knocked off Lamar Jackson, the league MVP that year and company. Vrabel gets this spot because he has consistently taken a team that when you look at the individual pieces, it doesn't scream out contender and he makes them into a contender. And what he did in 2021, when he was named the coach of the year, he set the record, the Titans set the record for the most different players on the roster throughout the course of the year. They obliterated whatever the prior record was, and they ended up being the number one seed in the AFC. They kind of snuck up on everybody and stole it. And Ryan Tannehill is, you know, he's in that Kirk Cousins good, not great, just kind of hanging around. We know who he is. We know what he is. He gets those moments and opportunities to bust through and what happened in that playoff game against the Bengals. And I feel bad for him. He was very open about his psychological struggles after that. And it would be difficult. You feel like you let everyone in the organization down. We work so hard. That's why I say all the time, that one seed, the burden that's on the one seed. When you start the playoff run, you got the bye week to sit home and watch others play. You're, you're not playing. Everyone else kind of has that playoff callous starting. And you get a team that comes in with nothing to lose. And you get that great season, that special season you put together. And it's all going to potentially fall apart in three hours, like it did for the Titans. But only so much of that blame goes to Vrabel. Because again, and I think back to the A.J. Brown trade. Remember the Vrabel pacing and the, he wanted to, he wanted to tackle someone. He wanted to go linebacker on someone and the Malik Willis situation where they use a third round pick on him last year. He plays near the end of the season. Vrabel benches him. And now they have Will Levis. And there's a thought that maybe Malik Willis won't even make the 53 man roster. And look for a guy who prides himself on roster flexibility and moving guys around. You know, to use that third quarterback rule that they adopted for this year, you have to have a third quarterback on your 53-man roster. Maybe Vrabel doesn't want to do that. But he won the power struggle between himself and John Robinson. And I think at the end of the day, there was a real disconnect. I first noticed it when Julio Jones was acquired via trade a couple of years ago from the Falcons. And after that trade was done, it was John Robinson who was making all the media rounds to talk about it. And Vrabel was nowhere to be seen or heard. I don't think Vrabel was in favor of it. I think Vrabel knew what they were getting, more importantly, what they weren't getting, and he didn't want it. And then he wanted to keep A.J. Brown, and they got rid of him. And then he didn't want to use a third-round pick on Malik Willis, I believe, and they did anyway. I don't know how the power structure is balanced between Vrabel and new GM Rand Carthon, but I think Vrabel's got more influence than maybe he had before, and I think they understand 
He's the reason this team has been competitive. He's been taking these various pieces and slapping them together. And it came up not long ago. Is he on the hot seat? No. And then I slipped into this question of whether or not he's among the coaches who would be instantly hired by someone else if he was fired now. And I think he would be. I don't know that he's quite on that list. And I think we put him on that list of guys who would actually induce another team to fire their current head coach because they thought they could hire Mike Vrabel, but he's close to it. And someone I know suggested to me recently, admitting to having no inside knowledge, but someone connected to the NFL more broadly has a theory that Mike Vrabel will be the successor to Bill Belichick in New England. Now, I don't know how they're going to pull it off. They may have to send some draft picks to Tennessee. Vrabel may have to go into someone's office and say, I don't want to be here anymore. This is my dream job. I'm in the Patriots Hall of Fame. He'll be entering that later this year. But that would be not a shocking turn. It's kind of hiding in plain sight. But really, who is the Bill Belichick successor? They're not going to give it to one of his kids. That's for sure. At one point, I thought it was Matt Patricia. That all fell apart last year. Now, I guess Patricia could come back and be the head coach, but man, that would be a tough sell after what happened last year. It's almost as if, and I'm not saying he did it on purpose, but Belichick may have poisoned the well for Patricia to be the successor to Belichick by putting him in a position to fail last year. I'd never thought of it that way, and I would hate to think that anyone is that devious and dastardly and sinister, but end result may be very well maybe there's no way Patricia is going to be the successor to Bill Belichick, but maybe it'll be Vrabel. I think Patriots fans could, could do a lot worse than Mike Vrabel as the coach of that team. And it would make a ton of sense if it were to happen, but I don't think the Titans are going to be inclined to let him go, nor should they. He comes in at number nine. As I talk about it, maybe he should have been higher, but as you hear the other names, as we do this one day at a time over the course of the next two weeks, as the slow time comes to an end, you'll understand why he's at number nine because there's some good coaches out there and we are acknowledging them from 10 to one we've done 10 doug peterson nine mike vrabel coming tomorrow unless i drink too much tonight and i'm unable to do pftpm which is possible coming tomorrow number eight have you ever brought your magic to walt disney world like hey we came to play did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life? Did you? If you could. Would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. 
So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Let's answer a few questions before we wrap up today's edition of PFTPM as I talk some more to fill in this gap as I try to find my Twitter icon here. And now I am looking for the tweet calling for questions. Here it is. What do we have? I sort of looked at some of these today. Some days I don't look at all. Some days I just have a minute or two to look through them to see if there's any I like. PFTPM Boston. Wouldn't the Deion Sanders upper room of the Hall of Fame end up like the regular Hall of Fame where all the politicking and popularity contests would ultimately impact it, even if the selectors are the former players already in? There would be an element of that, but this is know it when you see it. This is no dispute. We know who the clear-cut upper room guys are. And if you truly want to maintain the sense of exclusivity, those individuals are going to keep a higher bar. They're not going to feel compelled to let someone in every year to enhance the parade through the streets of Canton. You know, we're now at the point where they're eight, nine, 10 every year. It's a business. Canton becomes relevant to the sports world for one weekend out of the year. You can't have a year where you just say, you know what? No one qualifies this year. Come back next year. They got to have the parade. They got to have the ceremony. They got to bring in thousands of people. They tie the game to teams represented by players getting in to get more people to come there, fill the stadium, fill the hotels, fill the restaurants. It's a chamber of commerce dream. And Canton's a great town, but Canton's not an NFL city. It was, and it's the host of the Pro Football Hall of Fame. But the regular enshrinement process is so fueled by the business realities of keeping that museum viable. That's the one weekend of the year where it is its most viable. It's the only weekend where it's even relevant to the NFL. The upper room, Deion Sanders classification would be completely independent of that. They would decide, they would know. And I would trust them more. The guys who stand to have their status diluted by letting someone in who shouldn't be there because we like him, because he's a nice guy. You're either in or you're not. And we know who belongs and we know who doesn't belong. And I would fully and completely trust them. When I first heard the idea, I didn't like it. The more I thought about it, the more I talked about it. And I heard Dion explain it to Peter King. I love it. And I hope they do it. Hunter Wallace, which teams do you think can replace their quarterback with Caleb Williams if he can be acquired with a trade for the number one overall pick? Look, there's three types of teams in the NFL. One, teams that have shortlist franchise quarterbacks. Two, teams that don't. And three, teams that have a quarterback that they think with time may eventually become a shortlist franchise quarterback. If Caleb Williams either isn't the presumed pick of the Cardinals assuming they get the number one overall selection, or if he just doesn't want to go there. If he tells the Cardinals, I'm not interested. What other teams could make the move? A lot of it depends upon what happens this year, but I think the Vikings are a team that is clearly looking for their next Fran Tarkenton. And if they thought it was Kirk Cousins, they would have Cousins signed beyond this year. I've said that more than a few times. Any of these other teams, it's we know who has a franchise quarterback and we know who doesn't. And and I'm I'm not lumping in there the young guys. Like the Steelers aren't going to come to the conclusion where they're done with Kenny Pickett after this year. It would take a disaster. And then you've got the other teams that are have guys that are just getting started. But but the folks out there with veteran quarterbacks who have had three, four years to become who they're going to be, 
they're in a position where they can make that assessment. But it's all about having a franchise quarterback. If you have a franchise quarterback, you have a team that is in a position to contend every single year. And there are maybe five or six teams right now that can say they have the true franchise quarterbacks. And the ones I think of are Patrick Mahomes of the Chiefs, Josh Allen of the Bills, Jalen Hurts of the Eagles, Trevor Lawrence of the Jaguars. He's in that conversation. Joe Burrow, obviously, of the Bengals. And I don't know whether to put Justin Herbert there or not, because something's missing with Herbert and the Chargers. And it may be a Chargers thing, but at a certain point, if it is a Chargers thing, it becomes a Herbert thing. And Herbert doesn't strike me as like a Peyton Manning type who would eventually become so upset with what's happening around him that he starts expressing himself in a candid way that the things that are happening are not acceptable. Justin Herbert seems like a guy who'll just take it, go along to get along. Peyton Manning is a guy who would not tolerate it. Tom Brady is a guy who, once he was established, would not tolerate it. We're not good enough. We're not getting it done. I'm not going to worry about possibly ruffling feathers or upsetting people or disrupting the broader structure of the organization. We're not good enough. Justin Herbert needs to maybe be that guy who's willing to say difficult things internally. And if necessary, take it externally. If you try and you try internally to fix what needs to be fixed and it doesn't work and you keep banging your head against a wall at some point, you use your public platform. And if that doesn't get it fixed, it's time for Justin Herbert to think about another team. And I think about Matthew Stafford. He eventually left Detroit and got his Super Bowl championship, but he seemed to be a guy who tolerated mediocrity. He wasn't going to do anything to upset the apple cart. He wasn't wired that way. I remember when Reggie Bush joined the Lions and Reggie Bush had won a Super Bowl with the Saints. So he kind of knows what it takes to be a great team. The Lions were struggling. Bush wanted to have a players only meeting and Stafford didn't want to do it. It's like, wait a minute. You got a guy who, who knows how to make the sausage, who's been there while they made the sausage that won a championship. And he thinks that it's time for a players only meeting. And you got a quarterback that is still fairly early in his career and hasn't done much. And he's saying, no, there's, it's not enough to just be able to throw a football really far and really fast and really accurately. There's a leadership component. So I didn't mean to get off on that tangent, but I'm, I'm wrestling with whether or not to consider Justin Herbert a true shortlist franchise quarterback. And I got to put Lamar Jackson in that conversation as well. I think Jackson gets in before Herbert. If there is a sixth, it's Lamar. We'll see what he does this year with the new offense. He may cement that spot. He's in that, he's in that, that, that bridge between clear-cut shortlist franchise and, and really, really good, but not quite franchise. And I know he's the highest-paid quarterback in the NFL right now, but the Ravens decided that paying him $52 million a year was better than the alternative of not having him at all. But, you know, there's been some there's been some regression and in injuries and not being able to play. That's part of what makes a franchise quarterback. Franchise quarterback is available each and every week. Franchise quarterback doesn't get injured. Franchise quarterback, if he does get injured, finds a way to get back on the field quickly. So that that those are the reasons why Jackson's on the cusp. Herbert's on the cusp for different reasons. Herbert plays through injury. Herbert just doesn't lead the way that he needs to. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. But back to the original question, I can't even remember what it was. Any team that doesn't have a franchise quarterback and is coming back to me now would be in the mix to try to get Caleb Williams if they think that Williams, if they, you know, they have their own assessment of it. If they think he's a guy 
that can transform them into a perennial contender. And he's more likely to be great than to not be great. And you have the infrastructure in place to develop him. That's a team that would want to consider. Sam Eichenlob, what is the best worst car you have ever owned? And hang on, I have to do something here real quick related to the access to the house we're in. Somebody needs the code for the garage so they can get inside. All right, uh, best worst car I've ever owned. Well, I'll run through the whole list of cars I've owned and I'll let you decide. I inherited a Volkswagen Beetle from my sister. That was my first car. What my parents did for me, and I was very appreciative of it, it was yellow. They paid to have it painted silver and all the chrome was blacked out. It was, it was pretty nice. Um, that was my first car. Second car was a Ford Fairmont, but not just the regular Ford Fairmont. It was the Ford Fairmont Futura. It was sleeker. It had angles. It was a piece of crap, but it was my second car. White with kind of a red velvet. I was ensconced in velvet interior. And it was the only car I ever owned with that giant front seat. It, it, it used to be a selling point. Oh, we got bucket seats. It used to be a rarity to have bucket seats in a car. We had those big giant sit four cross in the front row cars and that that's what the ford was then then now that was my college car i went from the volkswagen high school it died when it was time to go to college i had the ford fairmont futura all through college law school car was a volkswagen jetta that i loved it was a manual transmission i didn't know how to drive it when i bought it my mom transferred the title and everything over i came home from a weekend early in my first year of law school and she said hey the uh the new car is ready to go and you can't drive the old one anymore. It's like, I don't know how to drive a stick. She said, well, no time like now to learn. And that was a hell of a way. I got thrown into the pool. I had to figure out how to swim. And I did that weekend. Uh, so that was a great car. I had that through law school. I had a Mitsubishi Galant. I bought that right before I started my first job in 1991. Black Mitsubishi Galant. I wanted to splurge for the Diamante. That was the higher end Mitsubishi sedan back then. But I was being careful with my money. I was getting used to the idea of having a regular paycheck. And I just didn't want to overdo it. In hindsight, I wish I would have. 1995 came a Subaru Legacy. White, all-wheel drive. Paid a little extra for leather seats. That was a car we had from 95 through 2001. 2001, I bought a used Audi A4. 2000 and. Four, I bought a Volkswagen Touareg, the SUV. It was nice, big red Volkswagen Touareg. I remember taking my son to buy it that day and we negotiated and all that stuff and we got it done and that was just a fun time. Audi Q7, a couple of years after that. Audi RS4, see, this is when I started to make money. The Audi RS4 that I bought in 2012, black with black and red interior. Awesome, stick shift. It was... It was it was a beast of a car and I'd like to find one and and, and get it back because I, I kind of wish I'd kept it, although it was a 2008 and it was, you know, it had some miles and it was kind of showing its age in comparison to the newer cars. Then I traded that for Alfa Romeo Giulia, which I loved. It wasn't a standard, but it had, it had very responsive paddle flippers on the wheel. And now most recently I've got an Audi RS7. So, so I'll have to say, I mean, really, when we do the progression, I'll say the best car was the RS7, although I love the RS4, but the RS7 is great. And when you turn it on, like if my son borrows it and I'm sitting in my office and he presses the button, it sounds like a rocket going off. It's how, that, that, that's how that engine sounds on the RS7. It's like 600 horsepower. And the worst one was probably the Fairmont Futura. 
because I can't I can't do that to the Beetle. The Beetle was my first car. How can your first car be a worse car? So uh, you probably regret asking that question. You got my whole history of vehicles, but isn't it wild? Like you you live and you drive for so many years, and I'm not somebody who I, I keep a car for about three or four years. I've kept them longer, but uh, I'm already getting the itch to explore a new one. So we'll see if that happens. I'll take suggestions. Give me your suggestions of the next car I should get on Twitter, and we'll see if we can work it out. Matt Bostock, does the Northwestern hazing scandal in college football impact NFL teams when it comes to potential future draft picks for those involved and similar stories of rookies in NFL being hazed? I don't know what impact this has on the NFL. I, I expect when Peter Skoronsky the Titans' first-round pick this year is available to the media in training camp. He's going to be asked about Northwestern, and he'll probably uh, – I don't, I don't want to prejudge what he's going to say. We'll see what he says. We'll see what he says. Maybe he'll confirm some of the reporting. Maybe he'll defend Pat Fitzgerald. Maybe he'll express frustration with the school for not standing behind their head coach. I mean, that Fitzgerald had a lot to do with Skaronsky being the 11th overall pick in the draft. But – I think there's still more to be learned about how deep that rabbit hole went. I think the bigger issue relates to college football. Cause I think by the time you're in the NFL, that kind of stuff doesn't go on. If a guy's not good enough, it just gets cut. He doesn't have to get hazed. He doesn't have to be subject to some sort of discipline from teammates. And the rookie hazing doesn't seem to be as bad as it used to be. Although we still hear stories from time to time about a rookie being stuck with a, a gigantic dinner bill. And I thought we had evolved away from that. I thought that with the Jonathan Martin situation in Miami, with, what am I blanking on? Richie Incognito. Getting his name there. That was 10 years ago. That was a big deal when everything blew up between them. I thought they had kind of maybe moved away from hazing and inappropriate behavior in a locker room. But, you know, in many respects, we hear stories from time to time. I think they're very good at keeping it quiet. I think that's part of the culture. No snitching, no speaking publicly about the things that really go on here. But there's been this sense that aspects of pro football organizations are still trapped in the 1950s and 60s. So who knows? If there's stuff going on, they're doing a good job of covering it up. But at some point, you would think with all these guys that move from team to team, somebody would be sufficiently disgruntled either during his career or after he's done to blow the whistle on something that he's pissed off about the way he was treated by a given team because they didn't think he was good enough, but he can't accept that they were wrong. And I know about this thing that they were doing. So I'm going to go public with it. There's so many players out there and there's so many different pathways for players to express their concerns about things that they witnessed that were improper. If it was happening in the NFL now, I think common sense suggests someone would be saying something about it at the college level. I don't know. Because the guys who make it to the NFL, they really don't have an incentive to complain about anything that happened because it worked for them. The guys who didn't, you know, this is a moment where with what's happened at Northwestern and the power that we see that the players can have when they use their voices, will it cause other players who were mistreated within college football organizations who felt like they couldn't complain about it, couldn't report it, couldn't do anything about it, and the coach knew or should have known or should have created a culture where these things wouldn't happen, will we learn more about other programs out there? Because I, I don't, I can't imagine that Northwestern's the only place where that kind of stuff was going on. Arvind, 
Could the public investment fund of Saudi Arabia swoop in and make a last-minute commander's offer of $7 billion with the promise of another $2 billion for stadium construction? Owning the D.C. team is a massive power play of soft power, and $9 billion with a stadium feels like a bargain for the Saudis entering the NFL through D.C. I think it's too late to get involved in the commanders, but let's, let's take your hypothetical and let's apply it to another team. The Seahawks can be sold without 10% of the proceeds going to the state of Washington as of May 2024. And Jody Allen, who's administering her late brother Paul's estate, seems to be in no hurry to sell the team. But that's a team where the public investment fund could make her an offer that she maybe wouldn't refuse. Effective May of 2024. Or what if they just decide to approach an owner that we otherwise think doesn't want to sell his or her team? But once they put that offer on the table, maybe they do. You have to think with the record being set last year, $4.65 billion for the Broncos. This year, $6.05 billion for the Commanders. In one year, it's gone up that much. What's the next rung on the ladder? And when do you find an owner who otherwise would be perfectly happy owning his team, finding out, maybe I could get $8 billion. Maybe I could get $9 billion. Maybe it's time to cash out. Maybe I've done everything I can do in the National Football League. I've won a Super Bowl. I'm not, I'm not trying to name names or make guesses, but if you've done everything you set out to do and you're in a position to get a massive, I don't want to call it a windfall because it's worth whatever someone will pay for it, but in comparison to what you paid to get the team, it is a huge return. And then the question becomes, will the NFL let them do it? And if the NFL doesn't, what will they do? We still don't know that they're interested in football. There was a report last week that they're interested in soccer, tennis, and other sports. If one of those other sports is American football, if you don't let them in the front door, they may try to set up a competing house next door. And as someone who loves a good story with a lot of controversy and drama and flat-out chaos, the idea of the public investment fund creating a league and outbidding the NFL for the rights to players and, and setting up a single entity that owns and operates the league like the NFL should have done back in the 20s makes it easier to avoid antitrust laws, for example. If it's one entity and not 8, 16, 32, however many different businesses, it's easier to run it. There's a lot that they could do. Football season competing league with NFL players. Part of me is rooting for it, frankly. I just, I'd love to see how that story plays out. I'd love to see how it starts. I'd love to see how it proceeds. And I would be very interested in seeing how it all ends. Spider 2Y banana. No, let me get this right. Spidey 2. Why banana? How far can you throw a football if you were to do so right now? Well, not very far because there's walls and windows in here. So it would go maybe maybe seven or eight feet. Uh, but if I were to walk out on the beach, and maybe I'll try it. We have a football here. I could probably throw it 40 yards, probably, with a couple of warm-ups. And I've, I've, I've worked on my form from working with Chris because what you're supposed to do, you, you point your front shoulder at your target, and you pull, you pull back and you... You don't throw like this, you throw like this. Although if you're Patrick Mahomes, you throw however you want and it gets there. But I could probably throw it 40 yards.
probably. Although we don't have, you know, the problem with the beach, there's no yard markers out there. We'd have to, we'd have to get a measuring stick and walk it off, but I think it would be 40 yards. Uh, inverted pyramid wants a Dalvin Cook update. We had one yesterday. No news since then. Drew Porter wants to know whether I think Jeff Bezos had interest in buying the commanders and would he be blocked from ownership due to his prime deal? Look, they'll let him in. If he wants in, they're letting him in. I think he looked at the commanders and realized, why do I want to spend $6 billion on a house that needs to be renovated? Why don't I just wait and buy a house that's ready to move into? I think he's waiting for the Seahawks. That's what I think. I don't know that, but I think he realized. Why do I want to take on this turd of a franchise right now? And Commanders fans know that post-Dan Snyder, it is kind of in that category. Why do I want to have to rebuild Van Lord and come up with all these ideas and mechanisms and strategies for making the team beloved again and doing all the... When I could just get the keys to a team that already has it all figured out. Uh, let's see. I should probably wrap it up. Right, let's. I'm looking for one more. Fishman WVU is a lifelong Washington fan. Is there still a chance Daniel Snyder could screw all of us fans and keep the team? I think it's too late by now. I think that the the ship has sailed. The paperwork's been signed. All that's left at this point is for the owners to gather next Thursday, I believe it is, and vote up or down, and they're going to vote up. Unless there's some financial wrinkle that they've just decided can't be fixed and Josh Harris refuses to do it and the league decides that's a deal breaker, this thing's done. So if it falls apart now, I think it's going to have nothing to do with Snyder and everything to do with the league deciding that Josh Harris hasn't put together a deal that the league regards as viable. And if you're a Washington fan, and I don't mean this as a slight against Josh Harris, look, he could come in and be the best owner in the NFL, but Generally speaking, if I'm a fan, I want the owner of my team to be someone who can just write a check, write a check for the team, write a check for this player, write a check for that player, write a check for a new stadium. You want to have an unlimited supply of money where the budget is never an issue and the spending will be robust. Coaches, no salary cap. I want the best coaches. I'm going to pay like David Tepper did. This all-star collection of assistant coaches. It's not just the head coach. So he's paying to get guys to go that otherwise wouldn't have gone like a Jim Caldwell. Join the staff, get paid good money, really good money relative to the rest of the market. That's what you can do. There's no way to have a salary cap. There's no way to control coaching salary. So if you have that unlimited money and you want to win, that's the owner you want for your team. Unlimited money and overwhelming desire to win. I mean, really, really. Setting aside the diplomatic complications of having the public investment fund of Saudi Arabia own an NFL team, that team would probably end up being pretty good because they would be motivated to spend their way to relevance, to spend their way to contention, and to spend their way to a championship. And you're a fan, if you're a fan of that team, what do you care? You just want your team to be good. And there's a better chance the team is going to be good if ownership is willing to do whatever it takes to make that team good. All right. Uh, that's it for today. Thanks as always for some of your time. We continue our streak with just one exception of PFTPM episodes being recorded during the PFT Live hiatus. We are back in just 13 days on Peacock, Sky Sports, and podcasts. Until then, we'll continue to bring you daily episodes, hangover permitting, 
And I had a little one today. I'll admit it. I got through it. Little little strawberries, a little coffee, a little passage of time, a little Advil. We'll see about tomorrow. We'll see about Thursday. We'll see about Friday. But so far, so good. Two for two here at Hilton Head. We hope to do it again tomorrow. And either way, we'll be posting content live. Not live, but yes, live, real time, around the clock at profootballtalk.com. Thanks again. See you tomorrow. and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand.